0: My name is Kent Woodrow. I'm the next generation pastor here at Holy Cross, um, working through the Psalms of Ascent. So, if you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles or turning on your phones and getting to Psalm 132, and while you're getting there, um, you ever used Airbnb? You ever used Airbnb to like to to book a place? Uh, I've I've discovered Airbnb. It's you. Look stuff up online. You're like, hey, I'm going to go vacation in Gatlinburg. I'm going to go vacation out in Myrtle Beach, whatever it is. So you look up this place. And you look up all the different pictures. And you study it very carefully. And then you compare a bunch of other places. And you finally pick the one that you want. If you've ever used this service, um, (laughs) maybe you're like me. I get intense anxiety about it. Because I'm like, what are they not showing me? You know, am I like landing right next to a construction zone? Am I, like, it, it, does the bathroom clog all the time? Like, what's what's going on? What, what's what's the story here? What is it about this destination? Because I'm about to put a bunch of money and then invest a bunch of time and get into this place. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? I remember when uh, my siblings and I, so I was... Uh, I was eight years old. I'd been to the U.S. once before because I grew up in Mozambique in Africa. Um, And so we were getting ready to come on furlough. And most of my siblings didn't remember a thing about what the United States was like. And so I was telling them all these stories. I was like, oh man, like from my, you know, extensive memory as a four-year-old in the United States, let me tell you about the U.S. It is the best place in the world. And I went on to describe places like Disneyland, you know, because every place in the United States is Disneyland. Um, and one of the things that most struck me when I was a four year old in the United States, there's no trash anywhere in all of the U S now here's the deal, right? Maybe you're, you're like, wait, what about literal on the sides of the roads? But for a kid who had grown up in Mozambique and Africa, where what we do is we take our garbage and we just put it right there on the side of the road. That's a lot of trash, right? It piles up. And so the fact that for me as a little kid, I was like, there's no trash anywhere. You can drive for miles and you don't see trash anywhere. But as an eight-year-old, I was a little more astute. Because then you start seeing those, you know, styrofoam cups chucked on the side of the road. A little disappointment. Like all the things that I built up, all the expectations that I had, uh, that I was trying to get my siblings all geared up for. eh, It's not quite, it's not quite what I thought it was. You know what that's like? you know what it's like to, yeah, to just be uncertain about your destination? Isn't it the worst when you've taken a long trip, kind of only to be disappointed? The Christian walk is, I mean, it's a tough journey, right? And maybe you've never asked this question. I think deep down inside, some of us wrestle with this. Is the destination worth it? is it going to be worth it when we get there? And if you're wrestling with this question or maybe just with discouragement in general, these words of God are for you. So would you stand with me? Out of, if you're able and you're willing, out of respect for the word of God, it's just what we do here. Psalm 132. A song of a sense. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we've heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of J.R. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord. Go to your dwelling place, your resting place. You in the ark of your might, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout joy. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testaments that I shall teach them, Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him, his crown will shine. This is the true word of the living God. He gives it to you because He loves you. Would you pray with me, Father in heaven? I just I just ask that you'd clear away distractions pray that where our hearts are weighed down and troubled, where our minds are on other things, where we're wrestling with fears and insecurities, Father, where we're dealing with deep shame, Father, where we're just bored, tired. Would you clear these distractions away? Let us see Jesus. That's why we're here. We want to see him, know him. We want to love him deeper. We ask that your word would do its faithful work in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. All right, so just a quick review. We're in the Psalms of Ascent. So that Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. Um, these are pilgrim songs. These are songs that people would sing, the, the Jews would sing, as they made their trek toward Jerusalem. And it's not just what they would sing as they trekked toward Jerusalem uh, as everybody's going to glaze over right now. We've heard this so many times. Hey, guess what? This is the last time you're going to have to hear this. Maybe, I don't know. Rick might rehash it again next week. Um, But as the the Psalms themselves, the songs of ascent are assorted in triads, okay? And the triads are, uh, they're supposed to give this idea of progression through a journey. Uh, So the first of the each triad of psalms is built around a point of distress. The second psalm is about God's provision along the way. And then the third song is about arrival, right? And now we get to Psalm 132. Guess what, guys? It's different. <laughs> um, it's a little different. It's unique in, in a lot of ways. One, as you probably realized as we were standing here, it's longer than a lot of the other psalms. Like a lot of the other psalms of descent. Like it's by far the longest. Thank you, Rick, for uh, giving me that one. Um, second, for those of you who are literary minded, you may have noticed this as we were reading through, it's divided into two pretty clear parallels. So the first part being one through verse 10, like that sets up a stage. And the second part parallels the first part pretty clearly. Uh, we'll work through that in a little bit. Also, it, it starts the final triad. We're in the last three songs of the Psalms of Ascent. And in this final triad, they're not really dealing with as much the distress, the provision along the way in the journey. Um, and then the arrival, these last three songs, they, kind of, they celebrate arriving in Zion. We've been trekking to this. We've been, we've been working toward this glorious city. We've said, this is what we're, this is our destination. This is what we're hoping for. This is why we're making this long journey. Finally we're here. So it kind of unpacks why is and subtly answers the question What makes Zion so special? Why make this trip in the first place? I mean, I don't think most of us haven't been to Palestine. But it it's hard to get to Jerusalem. It is hard to get up those steep ravines and all that sort of stuff. And especially, you know, if you're a farmer, you're you're taking off a long time to make this trek, to go to the holy city. Here's the question, why? Why is it worth it? So these last three songs kind of deal in, delve into that, all right? So here's here are the two things we're gonna focus on. Two points, the petition. We're going to look at verses one through 10 for that. And then second, the promise. Petition and the promise. All right, so uh, one of the other things that makes this psalm fairly unique is that it, it is dealing with a particular historical moment, all right? The other Psalms of Ascent are kind of generalized, but this Psalm of Ascent is, is reflecting on a particular historical moment. If you're interested in what that is, uh, you can read Second Samuel ver- chapters 6 and 7, all right? But it starts off with the moment the ark of God goes to its rightful place in Jerusalem, Zion. I feel like, wait, what? What was that? All right, so back in the beginning, um, when God came, he dwelt among his people, Israel. Uh, he had to build himself a big tent because they were all tw- tent dwellers and they had to be nomads and move around and all that sort of stuff. And so God's got this glorious tent and it's smack dab in the middle of his people. But to represent his presence there, he does what a king would do, especially a nomadic king has this throne-like object built. It's called an ark. That was the ark of God. And it wasn't so much a throne as more like a footstool. Because it represented the place where eternity, where God and man intersected. The place where you would go and you would find, this is where God is. This is where he rules. This is his sacred tent Among tent dwellers, this is his footstool. It represented God's presence. Now you think with an object like that, you'd be extra careful to like take care of it, right? It got lost. When the little prophet Samuel was a boy, there was a battle and God's people were like, hey, we're getting our tails whooped. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna bring the ark out and that'll show them God will be with us when we take the ark to battle. Guess what? They lost the battle. The enemies took the ark of God. They took it to their territory. It's a really fun story. You guys should go and read uh, 1 Samuel for it. Hilarious how God like proves that he is God in the face of idols. But eventually he restores the ark back to his people. And you'd think again, God's people would be like, okay, great, well, we're gonna take this ark and we're gonna take really good care of it now. Well, no, it ends up in the home of some fella and it kind of gets lost for multiple decades. So this was a big deal. When David the king... Um, He was the king who kind of united the tribes of Israel and uh, gave them security against invading enemies and so forth. So now with the borders more or less secure, he looks to bring God's footstool where it belongs, the royal city. And he wanted to build it a home. Now, that's the whole point of like the first several verses here. Like, it's like, okay. We don't know where the Ark of God is, so they locate that. That's kind of the the searching for the Ark of God that you see in verses 6 and 7. We heard about it. We think it's over here. Ah, it's in this guy's home. How do you lose the footstool of God? But anyway. um, And it's in David's heart that he won't rest until God's throne, God's footstool is settled in the capital city as is fitting for the Lord. He wants to build God a house. So this is the moment that this psalm writer is reflecting on, okay? Do you guys, does it strike you as odd when we read these first few verses? Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. And then later on in verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away your face. That sound a little strange to you? Because essentially what the psalm is, it's kind of like offering up a prayer to God in David's name. That's strange? You know, kind of the way we pray in Jesus' name. You ever wondered why we pray in Jesus' name? So it has to do with this idea of the covenant representative, all right? So um, God, the way he deals with human beings is through covenants. A covenant is a promise bound relationship. God comes to a group of people and he says, hey, I'm going to make you oaths, I'm going to make you vows. But the way he does that is he doesn't like call you each up one by one. All right, let's start with you. I'm going to make a vow to you. Now I'm making a vow to you. Now I'm making a vow to you. No, what happens is he picks a covenant representative. This is a figurehead. It's someone who represents his people. This is a mediator. Someone who represents God's people to God and God to his people. A go-between. And all of God's covenants, whether it's with Adam, Noah, Abraham, like all of God's covenants had a covenant representative. Adam was the covenant representative. Noah was the covenant representative of the Noahic covenant. Abraham, a covenant representative. Moses, now David, and then ultimately Jesus. So what God's people would do is they would come before the Lord in the name of their covenant representative. They'd say, God, you made promises. You made promises to David and through him to his people. And I'm one of his people so now i'm claiming those promises in david's name would you be true because what i'm asking of you lord is something that they would ask something you've already promised to give so that's what the psalm does for the sake of david don't turn away your face remember o oh lord in his favor he he built you this house he was looking for he was he he set up the the uh the throne room of God in the royal city. And now David, or and now Lord, we, we ask his name. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable. Like, hey, no, I should be able to represent myself. I don't need anybody speaking for me. I mean, we are Americans after all, right? But even here, even in the United States, we do this whole representation thing, right? Like it's our house of representatives. It's how our government functions. You don't go and get pork barrel legislation yourself to get your like Stanton city, uh, getting some federal funding and so forth. No, we we elect representatives who go and hobnob with other people. And because of deals that they make, we get benefits or we get screwed, whichever way you want to see it. Um, That's how we work. The ultimate representative in our country is the president, right? Guess what happens if he declares war? Well, it's going to affect all of us. But even just on a on a local level, um, we know what this is like. We ride coattails. right? You, you get a job, again, not because of what you know, but because of who you know. You go to somebody like, hey, so, yeah, uh, we have a mutual connection. I'd love to work for you. You often get a job because of that. Or, You know, if you want to get introduced to somebody, it's really helpful to know somebody who knows that person. So we get the idea of being represented. And so God's people in this psalm, they're saying, for David's sake, answer these petitions. You promised to him. We claim those promises. All right, so what are these requests? Let's look down specifically at verse 8 through 10. Here are the requests given. Say, Lord, go to your resting place. What does that mean? I mean, essentially, like as as the temple as the as the ark is bringing being brought into Jerusalem, what they're saying is, God set up shop in Jerusalem. Would you own this place? Do you make this your own? I mean, you guys know that. Um, The benefits of when a large company kind of moves into an area, right? Suddenly we got more jobs available, all that sort of stuff. Now imagine, imagine it's not Amazon setting up a warehouse somewhere close by. Imagine how things would change if God set up shop close by. I mean, literally you could do that in Jerusalem. You could like go walk a block and knock on the door of God's house. And the next several requests kind of highlight how uh, how things would change if God if God set up shop. So the next request here is so it's Lord, go to your resting place. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Here's what that means: Let those who serve you be good men, people who are just, true, people who've been made right. Hey. Okay. Um, if you know church hurt, and a lot of us do, you know church hurt, you know how important this prayer is, right? Wouldn't it be nice to not have church scandals? Wouldn't it be nice to never have to question the motives of your leaders, be able to just implicitly trust that those who serve in God's name do it out of a pure heart? They love you. They love the Lord. So you don't have to have suspicion. Wouldn't that be nice? Be nice to have God on your block. Nice to have him dwell close by. Be nice to have leaders. You don't have to be suspicious of religious leaders. Look down at verse nine, the next request. Let your priests be filled with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. (laughs) That's just a beautiful image, isn't it? God's people are so satisfied and thrilled that they can't contain your joy. When's the last time you shouted for joy? Last time you were so Uh, (laughs) filled I get some faces. I've never shouted for joy. No, but really, like when's the last time you were so contented, so satisfied? Wouldn't it be nice to have the kind of life where that's, you're just just thrilled to live that you regularly just shout for joy? I want to know the clearest example of this little (laughs) three-year-old, my daughter, Melody, running laps around the house, just going, why? Just, she's happy. (laughs) It can't be contained. Life is great. Wouldn't that be nice? Nice to shout for joy. (laughs) Then finally, the request in verse 10. For the sake of David, your servant, don't turn away the face of your anointed. So what does that mean? This means don't abandon your king. There are two reasons for this. One, like they're saying, Lord, David was an extra special guy. His other descendants might not be up to the snuff, but Lord, for his sake, just continue to bless our people, continue to be our God. All right? So it'd be nice to have a secure dynasty, but it also, when, when the Kingship is secure when government is running as it should and all that sort of stuff, then the people are secure. So there's a correlation there. Keep us secure. Whenever kingship changed hands, the people braced for political instability, civil war, invasions by opportunistic enemies, all that sort of stuff. Do you resonate? Because I know there's no political cynicism in this room at all. There's no fear of what could happen in the political arena, when we have transitions of power, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful to not have to worry, to know that the person in charge has your best interests at heart and also has the power to make those best interests reality. It's not that you elect a a great candidate and you're like, yes, you're gonna change everything. And then they get there and they can't do anything, right? Because of all the other people, right? Wouldn't it be nice have someone who's got your best interests at heart and power to make it reality? All right, so that's the request. They're, they've listed these four requests and the requests are, it's for a beautiful reality, isn't it? Like, can you imagine? Wouldn't it be wonderful if such a place actually existed? A place where God set up shop, where the religious scene was pure and right so that we could feel pure and right. A place where we only ever experience profound joy—had you just from <laughs> running in circles around Stan, screaming ah, <laughs> That'd be a little weird, but it would be nice to have that feeling. Or <laughs> well, you'd never have to fear destabilization. But you could know peace. <laughs> See, here's the thing: this is this is the yearning that every human being feels, right? You know why? Because it's the place we were made for the place that used to be home until we walked out. It's what God wanted for us until we broke relationship with him, turned our back on him and ran. But what we do now, because we live in the kind of world we do where we don't experience this stuff, is we kind of just get cynical, don't we? Well, that's never going to happen. I can never imagine being so full of joy that I just... <laughs> can never imagine having political and religious leaders who are actually for us. We just, we give up very early on. We learn such a place doesn't exist, right? Here's the thing. It's not as far-fetched as it sounds because this isn't only our deep longing, is it, for this place? It's God's deep longing. And he's not just sitting there like idly wishing. You know what? Like things were so great back in the day. I wish we could go back to that. He's made a promise. He has made a promise that that is what he is going to bring about. He has promised this. So let's look at this promise now. All right. So again, for you, uh, you literally, you people who are literarily inclined, it's kind of cool how the first part of this psalm opens up with David's oath how he swears to God. The second part of the song, the Lord is swearing a sure oath to David. And all through, you're going to see the parallels to uh, the first bit here. So we're going to look at verse 11 and 12 in a little bit. So, uh, but right now let's focus on 13 through 18. What two words do you see repeated everywhere? Verses 13 through 18. Maybe you heard it as we were reading. I will. Yeah, I will. I will. I will, I will. It'd be kind of cool for the sake of parallelism, right? To have the four requests on the one hand, and then God's four I wills. Do you know what? There are far more than four I wills. That's intentional. Because God's promises far outstrip our ability to ask. We ask for four things, God, and God's like, hey, I'm gonna give you a bunch. That's how he is. All right, so let's let's look at these I wills then. We asked, Lord, would you set up shop? And he says in verse 14, I will dwell there. This will be my resting place. Again, footstool, right? You only put your feet up in a place that you're like, I'm going to be here for a while. This is my dwelling. And, and God's not just saying, hey, uh, I'm going to set up shop here. Fine. You asked for it. Okay. Okay. I'll be here. What does he say? This will be my dwelling place. I have desired it. He repeats that again in verse 13. He has desired it for his dwelling place. I mean, the word desire in English is pretty strong, but especially in Hebrew, like it's it's a, it's kind of a yearning for it. It's like, I want this. God's not being forced. He's not having his arm twisted behind him to dwell among his people. He wants to. He's desired it. He also says in verse 15, like he will abundantly bless or provide, right? So, and then they give this illustration or or God says, I will bless the poor, satisfy them with bread. Here's why the the poor becomes like a little uh, illustration of how richly and lavishly God will bless. Because we may not get this in the United States because our poor people, you know, we are not nearly as poor as people around the globe have been historically, Right? We have poverty in the US, but it's compared to what things have been throughout time, we do pretty well. Poor people in Israel's day, like literally did not know where their next meal was going to come from. Literally. And there are people like that in the U.S. I'm not saying that, that doesn't exist. They had no idea where their next meal was come from. They would all they would always be hungry, and here the Lord has met the needs of Of the poor. And so this is a metaphor of contrast, right? So like, if even the poor are satisfied, if even those among us who have the direst straits where they don't know what the next thing is coming up, if even they have so much that they are satisfied, how much more for the rest of us, right? How abundantly will God provide? So God will dwell, he will provide. Verse 16, he says he will clothe. They asked for the priest to be clothed with righteousness and God says, I'm going to clothe him with salvation. Why the contrast? Scholars aren't really sure. Um, they don't really unpack that a ton. But I think the idea is like, you know, this this being right, this purity, this, this being true is something that I will give and it will be secured. Okay? So the Lord will clothe. And in verse 16, her saints will shout for joy. God's like, hey, you want to shout for joy? Sure, I'll make you shout for joy. In fact, you'll have no reason to not shout for joy because I'm dwelling in your midst. And then finally, the request for the king, verse 17 through 18. God promises he will establish the king. And so, and there's a lot of imagery. Hebrew does this. Hebrew is a beautiful language in the fact that like they, it's very visual. All right, so the horn represents strength. God will give the king strength. The lamp represents guidance. Uh, the king won't be out there just trying to figure out how to do stuff on his own. He's gonna be guided by the Lord. He's gonna be vindicated and protected from his enemies who, want to, who are clothed with shame. Um, he will be, his righteous rule will, will shine. His crown will shine, right? So in other words, far from abandoning Israel's king and covenant representative, the Lord promises to secure him by extension, to secure his people. All right. Sounds great, doesn't it? That'd be cool. Is it true? Does such a place as Zion actually exist? Because here's the, here's the truth, right? Even for those of us who romanticize the past, and I'm, I'm one of those people, I love romanticizing the past. Um, this kind of situation did not exist in David's day. This kind of situation actually hasn't existed since David, right? It doesn't exist in our day-to-day, right? So we're left with two choices. Either this promise is worthless, and what are we doing wasting our time here, right? Or else it's still to come. And if you've never doubted God's word, can I just say good for you? you're a far better Christian than I am. Like, I think, I just want want to own that. It's a human thing for us to wrestle through, like, well, Lord, you've made all these grand promises. Are you actually committed to them? Is this actually going to pan out? Does God really mean this? How do we know for sure the Zion we're waiting for, this home that we're all looking for, this place we've been promised, it's actually out there. That this destination we've been trekking toward is there and worth the trip. Goodness knows it's it's a long, hard trip, right? So, if you've ever wondered that, I have one word for you. It's a name. Jesus. Jesus. Okay. It's not just the Sunday school answer, right? Don't... <laughs> eye rolling. Um, it's real. And we're going to work through this, okay? Jesus is far more than the Sunday school answer. He's the son. In verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath, one of your sons from your body. This is Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. He's not only the king God promised who inherits the promises God made to David. He's also the one through whom God is fulfilling his promises. There's a lot of promises there. Um, so let's unpack that, okay? Let's look at when God's We just finished talking about God's I wills, right? So let's look at how Jesus fulfills those I wills. God says, I will dwell. You know what? Having a tent is pretty cool to have God's dwelling place among God's people. But you don't get better proof of God's desire to dwell with people, of God's earnestness to dwell with us than to have the second person of the Godhead become a human being. So you're no longer having to like get symbols of God, like see a lampstand, see a table with bread put out, see an ark. You actually have somebody we can touch, a human being, somebody who can give us hugs, right? You don't get better proof of God's desire to dwell with people. For Jesus, second person of the Godhead to take on a human body, Hang out with us down here. God has committed dwelling. Not in the notes, but I think some of us just think, ah, what's the big deal with that, of God becoming a man? He's God. <laughs> right? Like I know that most of us are like, ah, it's not so bad being human. <laughs> but for God, for the creator to become a creature, and then to deal with all the brokenness and, and the, the suffering that we have to deal with, it's a huge deal. But he did it because he's committed to you. He's committed to his promises. He loves you. You know what else? Jesus isn't schluffing off the body afterwards. let resurrect. He will, he will be human for all of eternity. Angels don't get that. They don't have a God who became an angel for them. But we have a God who became one of us for all of eternity. You know why? Because he made those promises. He loves you. You don't get better proof of God's commitment to dwell among us. He would become man. So God promises, I will dwell. He also promises, I will abundantly provide. (laughs) And Jesus' actions in the New Testament are lavish, aren't they? Like he he goes to a party and he turns water into wine. And it's like, we're talking fats of wine. Like he he has 5,000 people and he feeds them all out of nothing. It's just proof that Jesus, when God comes, he provides lavishly and abundantly. I will clothe. Jesus, our perfect high priest, removes the rags of our sin, dresses us in salvation and righteousness that's his own so we can be spotlessly pure. He clothes us. He says, I will bring rejoicing. Hey, if you really want to want, want to know joy, just think of the fact that like, throughout the centuries, Christians have been persecuted and martyred for their faith. Very often, they're, they go to their deaths singing. That's joy you can't kill. God's people, I mean, you know this. We we go through hardship too. And maybe we're not singing the whole way. There's joy that comes in the morning. That's true joy. It's joy that you can't find anywhere else. All right. I will dwell, I will provide, I will clothe, I will bring rejoicing, I will establish a king. Here's the thing about our king, not even death could kill him, right? So nothing is a match for him. He is seated, he's reigning, his reign is secure. God answered that promise in Jesus. So Jesus is the Lord's guarantee to his word, the down payment. He's the proof that God stands behind his promises. All right, so let's let's think of it this way. Okay, Um, for the sake of an illustration. Let's say you've promised your kids for years, we're going to Disney World, right? Uh, maybe your kids don't have that fascination. Um, I did. It's one of the great things about the United States. Disney World, it's this land of Chrome and Mickey. Uh, so let's say you've made those promises. You could say all you want, right? You could tell them, yeah, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It doesn't mean anything until what? So you buy the tickets, you gotta buy those tickets. You gotta fork over thousands of dollars (laughs) for those day passes, those park hopper passes for the place that you're gonna stay for the plane tickets, all that sort of stuff. But you're putting your money where your mouth is. And even if you're not at Disney World yet, right? Your kids can know you're not gonna back out. You know why? Because the painful part's done. <laughs> you just, you spent all that money so you're, you know you're going to get there. I don't care if anybody, like if someone has to have an amputation the day before, we're still going to Disney World. <laughs> painful part's done. The sacrifice has been made. You bought the tickets. You're going to go. So how can you know that God is committed to keeping his word? He bought the tickets. He made the sacrifice and it cost him dearly, far more than we'll ever know. Jesus became a man for you. He lived the perfect life for you. He became sin for you. He carried your guilt, your shame for you. He died for you. He was raised to life for you. He reigns you good. He loved you when you hated him. Chose you when you'd have nothing to do with him. He drew near to you when you were running from him. Is he really not gonna finish the work now? He moved heaven and earth to be near you as he promised he would. You think he's not gonna bring you to Zion. The place that he promised. Look, God's bought the tickets. The hard part's done. So we can buckle up, right? Get ready for this trip. We can do it with joy because God promises that the destination is worth the journey. We're going to the place he promised. Pray with me. Father, I, I do ask. ask um, that you just move in our hearts, You've made promises, Lord, and and we often just don't trust them. That says a lot about us. It says nothing about you. So would you move in our hearts to, to cause us to trust? Would you help us to value our Savior, to value his sacrifice? Father, I pray that we would be secure as we head out into whatever this week holds, that we'd rest, knowing that your promises hold true. Done the hard part. Can rest. You're bringing us home. Jesus, thank you for that. Thank you. So I lift all this up in your name. Amen.